Section 41 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 4, Brazil. Chapter 18, Events of 1849 to 1864. After the final pacification of the country, prosperity came with a rush. In the six years from 1849 to 1856, foreign commerce more than doubled. The circulating medium was brought to a sound basis. Coffee had doubled in value by 1850, and its culture was rapidly extended. The profits of sugar-raising had not risen in the same proportion, and Rio, São Paulo, and Minas drew slaves from the northern provinces. The decline of mining in the late years of the 18th century, and the profitableness of sugar and tobacco during the Great Wars, had made Maranhão, Pernambuco, and Bahia overshadow the south for a time, but now the tide turned the other way. Brazil's drift has ever since been to the south. The emperor and government followed an enlightened and vigorous progressive commercial policy. The subjects of internal communication, of colonization, of better steamship facilities, of the opening of public lands to settlement, of public instruction, of liberal treatment of foreigners, and of administrative and financial reforms were taken up intelligently. So far as the government was concerned, the suspicion and jealous exclusive policy was abandoned, and large amounts of foreign capital began to be invested in commercial houses, preparing the way for the great government loans and railroad building soon to come. The British had the lion's share of the importing, and the Americans of the carrying trade. The history of Brazil for the next few decades contains examples of devotion, of high-mindedness, and of great capacities worthily employed, of which any country might well be proud. The higher officials, as a rule, left office poorer than they had entered it. However, in the lower ranks of the magistracy and the government departments there was much to be desired. The public service became more and more the one career sought by young men of ability. The mercantile and property-owning classes in general kept out of politics. Only the land-owning and slave-holding aristocracy owed a nominal allegiance to the two parties whose active members were the office-holders, or those who hoped to become office-holders. The most promising and prominent young men were selected from the graduates of the universities, placed in the magistracy, thence to be promoted to the chamber of deputies, and to be governors of provinces. The final goal was a nomination to the Senate, where, from the dignified security of a life position, the successful Brazilian politician watched the struggles of those below him. The bright young magistrates were preoccupied with their own ambitions and were not responsible for the people of the localities they happened to be governing for the moment. Real local interests were not studied. Those who reached the highest positions applied their well-trained minds to larger problems, but their work was too much from above down. They produced admirable reports and framed admirable laws, but among the lazy magistracy and indifferent people the energy to put them into effect was too often wanting. But the level of political well-being rose noticeably, though fitfully. The Brazil of 1850 had progressed far beyond the Brazil of colonial times. Liberty of speech was unquestioned and unquestionable. Arbitrary imprisonment had died out. The grosser forms of tyranny had vanished. 
property rights and the administration of civil justice had much improved judges no longer openly received presents from litigants though the nation had not risen to the conception of a judiciary independent from the executive in eighteen fifty the emperor chose a new conservative cabinet which proved the most efficient the country had known its first great act was to abolish the slave trade the year eighteen fifty is also memorable as that in which the yellow fever began those terrible ravages on the brazilian coast which have never since entirely ceased the first epidemic is said to have been the worst which ever visited rio two hundred persons fell sick daily and the wealthier classes were especially attacked among the victims was the great statesman bernardo de vasconcelos and many deputies senators and diplomatic representatives congress adjourned in terror in the earlier epidemics the citizens of rio were just as susceptible as foreigners later however they acquired a relative immunity an immunity which is not shared by brazilians who have lived in non-infected districts brazil and argentina had agreed in eighteen twenty eight that uruguay should be an independent and neutral buffer state between them but the buenos aires never forgot that for geographical and historical reasons uruguay naturally belonged to them rosas the argentine dictator assisted the oribe faction which openly advocated entering the confederation while the rio grande brazilians who owned much property on the uruguayan side of the border aided the rivera faction to protect the property interests of its citizens and prevent rosas from conquering uruguay the brazilian government quietly made military preparations and formed an alliance with the rivera party and with urquiza the ruler of the province of entre rios to which the dictator of paraguay and the president of bolivia gave a passive adhesion it amounted to a coalition to forestall rosas's plan of uniting the whole of the old viceroyalty and the plate valley under his rule brazil was virtually the instigator of a combination of the weaker spanish-american states against the strongest one urquiza crossed the uruguay and with the aid of the brazilian troops made short work of oribe's army which was besieging rivera in montevideo rosas responded with a declaration of war and began collecting a formidable army urquiza resolved to carry the war to the gates of buenos aires the allies gathered in camp on the left bank of the paraná a hundred miles above rosario a great army which numbered four thousand brazilians eighteen thousand argentines mostly from the half-indian provinces of entre rios and corrientes and the contingent of uruguayans a brazilian fleet under admiral grenfell had penetrated up the paraná and protected their crossing of the great river on the seventeenth of december they got safely over the paraná and out of the low country of entre rios on to the dry pampas of the right bank thence they marched down on buenos aires where rosas was awaiting them on the third of february eighteen fifty two he gave them battle in the suburbs of that city he was completely defeated and fled to england brazil found herself in a peculiarly advantageous position the war had cost her little in money or men buenos aires might no longer hope to dominate the other argentine provinces and seemed likely to offer small resistance to the unified and centralized empire uruguay's independence of buenos aires and brazil's preponderance in montevideo were assured 
The Rio Grandenses flocked over the border, bought large amounts of property, and enjoyed peculiar privileges, while the Uruguayan government accepted subsidies from that of Brazil. The country's commercial development continued even more rapidly after the war. In 1853, the Bank of Brazil was authorized to issue circulating notes, and the expansion of credit stimulated business. The same year, the Conservative Ministry, which had so brilliantly governed the nation since 1848, was forced to resign on account of the constant interference by the Emperor. It was replaced by the, quote, conciliation cabinet, end quote, whose chief, the Marquis of Paraná, adopted the policy of admitting liberals to administrative positions. He remained in power until 1858, and his name will always be associated with one of the most prosperous epochs in Brazilian history. The first railway systems were inaugurated. The receipts of the treasury grew 50%. European immigration amounted to 20,000 a year. Private wealth and luxury increased, and numerous theatres, balls, and social reunions furnished an indication of the rise of the level of culture. One of Brazil's reasons for entering on the war against Rosas was to open up the navigation of the Paraguay, Paraná, and Uruguay, upon which she depended for access to a large part of her territory. The treaties made at the conclusion of the war assured, against her protest, free navigation to all nations. Brazil has intermittently attempted to confine the navigation of the international rivers of South America to the nations having territory on their banks. Paraná's conciliation policy seems to have suited the emperor very well, although it tended to hamper the development of two great parties in clearly defined opposition to each other. The elections came more and more under the control of the bureaucracy and were mere ratifications of the selections made by the ministers. Congress lost rather than gained in influence, and the whole system became steadily more centripetal. From 1849 the country had been having prosperous times, but in 1856 the inevitable commercial crisis came. Prosperity had brought about extravagances in governmental administration, the budgets showed deficits, foreign loans were resorted to, the currency fluctuated violently. Brazil entered upon seven lean years, during which foreign trade remained stationary, the revenues increased only at the cost of heavy impositions, and the public debt grew. With the death of the Marquis of Paraná in 1858, the regular conservatives returned to power. He had been the dominant figure in politics since the Regency, and his personal prestige and the confidence the Emperor reposed in him had had much to do with holding the government together during the panic. But the new ministry could not make headway against the difficulties. A new currency law was necessary, but the mercantile and speculating classes bitterly opposed the rigid measures proposed by successive cabinets. Paraná's neutral policy had given the opposition a hold in some of the most important provinces, and the following elections showed a vast increase in the number of liberals and of dissident conservatives. Conservative cabinets succeeded each other rapidly from 1858 to 1862. The opposition to a contraction of the currency grew in force, and the dissidents and liberals finally obtained a majority. The emperor at last called upon the leaders of the dissident conservatives, Zacharias, to form a government. 
but he was as powerless as his predecessors, and as a last resort the Emperor temporarily gave up the effort to govern after the English system and selected a cabinet outside of the Chamber of Deputies. The elections of 1863 resulted in a complete defeat of the Conservatives, but the victorious Liberals did not need to pass any radical currency legislation. Hard times had disappeared by the operation of natural law. The banknotes approached par and the budgets nearly balanced. With 1864, the country entered upon a new era of prosperity. The production of coffee had doubled from 1840 to 1851 and then had remained stationary. But with the cessation of the civil war in the United States, an era of high prices was inaugurated which coincided with Brazil's financial rehabilitation and stimulated planting. Although real activity in the building of railroads did not begin until after the Paraguayan War, four short lines had been started before 1862. The years of peace and order had disaccustomed the people to the thought of violence, and a steady advance had been made toward government of by law. The highly educated statesmen, placed by the emperor at the head of affairs, understood the most important principles of good government and tried conscientiously to put them in practice. In transportation, banking, posts and telegraphs, commercial methods, etc., the improvements of modern civilization were easily introduced, though in agriculture the indolence of proprietors and the apathetic ignorance of the slaves prevented any rapid advance. On the whole, Brazil had made greater political and industrial progress when the Paraguayan War broke out than any other South American country, though grave vices remained to hamper her further development. The mass of the people were apathetic and ignorant. Slavery tended to discredit industrious habits, at best so difficult to maintain in the tropics. The upper classes showed little interest in or aptitude for commercial matters. Commerce, banking, railroads, mining, and engineering prospered only when foreigners personally engaged in them. The people themselves, in spite of the enlightenment of the educated classes, showed little initiative or energy. End of section 41